cuando desempaques tus regalos, niño de lujosa vecindad, piensa en tantos niños que no saben para qué es la Navidad. Piensa en el chavalo limpia botas, que su noche buena pasará en una banqueta dura y fría del atrio de catedral. Feliz Navidad, feliz Navidad, en justicia y libertad. Feliz Navidad. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics, and most recently about Christmas time. I'm Dean Detloff. I am your elf workshop quality control tester. I'm Matt Vernico. I'm just the red-nosed reindeer. <laughs> well, I uh, really served that role pretty quick. Um, this week <laughs> we are talking with Brent Plate, who has a very cool and very long official title. He said we could use it or not use it, and we've decided to use it. So I'm going to tell you in full. He is Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Cinema and Media Studies by Special Appointment at Hamilton College, uh, a title that we could all aspire to. Um, Brent has written several books and essays, including a recent one with Columbia University Press called Religion in Film, Cinema, and the Recreation of the World. Since it is still technically Christmas time, we asked Brent to talk with us about why we all love those good, good Christmas movies that we love so much. So we start off the interview asking Brent what his favorite Christmas movie is, and then we dive in from there, but we didn't really admit ours. So Matt, what is your favorite Christmas movie? Uh, my favorite Christmas movie, it's a really recent um, adoption of mine, but it is The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, oh, okay. My, my parents wouldn't let me watch it when I was a kid because, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, folks on the family uh, said it was it was too dark. But uh, now that I'm an adult and I can, handle, <laughs> I can handle this and make my own decisions about movies, I love it. My son loves it. Uh, collectively, we are Jack the Pumpkin King, and it's great. <laughs> Now that you can focus on your own family. <laughs> I can focus on my own family. Yeah, uh, man, my son, Lewis, he loves Oogie Boogie, even though he's like the scariest bad guy I've ever seen, but he's all about him. <laughs> uh, we had a VHS tape of that movie uh, that we did watch when we were kids, and my younger sister, um, she doesn't listen to this podcast, so I'm going to tell the story. Um, <laughs> she, she was very afraid of Oogie Boogie, and we did conveniently lose that VHS for a couple <laughs> years and it did mysteriously resurface uh when she was older and felt like she could handle it so um i'm not saying she did steal it but i'm not not saying she didn't uh in any case she's over it now she does like it um as far as i know but uh yeah good pick it's a great movie there's so much cool like cool visual stuff lots of good stop motion animation uh my son uh when he watched it for the first time he's four he's probably too young to watch it but i'm a bad parent so what, <laughs> what can you do um i asked him if oogie boogie was too scary for him he said no he's just bugs <laughs> <laughs> so tell that to everyone he's who's right afraid of oogie boogie he's just bugs underneath it all that's all that's all aren't we all just bugs at the end <laughs> that's right uh dean what's your favorite <laughs> christmas movie Man, there's so many to choose from, but I have to say National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is probably oh my, my favorite. Um, 
And I don't know exactly why, except that uh, my dad really loved the scene where um, the uh, main character, Chevy Chase, uh, is sitting in his, or standing in uh, the living room, and he gets a glass of eggnog and has a very long rant. Um, and he concludes the rant by yelling, uh, uh, hallelujah, holy shit, where's the Tylenol? And uh, my dad would say that himself throughout the year uh, during ordinary time when it was no longer Christmas. Um, and it became a really good running joke in our family. So I do still love the where's the Tylenol line. Hallelujah, where the hell is the Tylenol is big dad energy. That's the biggest dad energy. <laughs> uh, there's like also constantly. a great... Yeah, Uh, I also love their neighbors. Um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays one of them, uh, but they are like these extremely bougie, (laughs) like, um, I don't know what they do, but like capitalist couple who uh, despise um, their neighbor. And I love it. It's a a really good, um, incredibly soft, but very funny critique of like uh, young professionals. Um, I was like that a lot. (laughs) That's great. Cool. Well, there you go. There, those are our Christmas movies. That uh, those are our fave Christmas movies. Uh, you know, tweet us yours. Let's get this Christmas movie vibe going and <laughs> a big a big watch list. What's the most radical Christmas movie? What's the most communist Christmas movie, Dean? Do you know? Because I don't. Oh boy, you don't. Hmm. No, I thought this would be a great setup to a joke, but I don't have one. uh there's so many i mean uh a christmas carol it's sort of it's almost there because marx did like dickens and uh there's that really troubling scene where um that one christmas ghost opens his uh robe and there's um two uh starving kids and they represent like poverty and that sort of thing that's pretty wild right um that one's close uh scrooged that one's pretty close but donald trump is in that movie Another movie that was too scary for me to watch when I was a little kid. <laughs> that last ghost was too scary in there. In Scrooge? Yeah. That is a spooky you... ghost. Yeah, the spooky ghost, man. Christmas movies have uh, a lot of ghosts in them, I'm realizing right now. <laughs> by, by spooky ghost, you do mean Bobcat Goldthwait, right? Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, uh, uh, you tweet us what you think is the most communist Christmas movie because we have no idea. Um, but let's get to Brent and his uh, very good interview. This week on the show, we're talking to Brent Plate. He's a professor of religious studies and cinema and media studies at Hamilton College. He's a scholar of media and religion. Brent, you've done a lot of work on things like film and material culture. We're going to get to that uh, in a moment. But just to set up this episode, we have to ask you a very important initial question, and that is, what is, after all, as a professor of religious studies and, and media and cinema, what is your favorite Christmas movie? Oh yes, right to the right to the most important things. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got a I've got three of them that I watch pretty pretty much every every year, and um, I, I think in I think it, it changes from year to year which one's my favorite. But um, I the top the top two are either um, and and everybody's going to groan, but uh, it's a wonderful life. Um, and uh, the second one is uh, a Christmas story. And the third one, which always is sort of somewhere in the top, is uh, Elf with Will Ferrell. Hmm. So those are those are the uh, those are the three. And then, sort of extend a little bit farther, I, I bad, bad Santa. I, I end up kind of rewatching quite a bit and uh, <laughs> a couple others. So that's great. Those are good choices. I like that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good gamut of genre and and time and everything. 
Yeah, yeah, trying to get. I mean, they're they're they definitely you know it's nothing. They're all kind of at the tops of most most people's lists. But you know, I think there's a reason for that. I, and I, I definitely defend uh, defend the top two as being you know just kind of important movies um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, all right, well, uh, you're here talking to us about Christmas and film and media. Um, we we thought it'd be cool to talk to you because you wrote these two really nice articles about Christmas and material culture, and also Christmas and cinema. So, um, I don't know, uh, what's the connection there? Like, why are you interested in Christmas at all? Like, what's the connection between religion and media and Christmas? Well, most, most of my work is looking at um, how religion, uh, you know, religious traditions and in the wake of secularism um, become, how, how rituals and myths and symbols sort of continue on in the world and even with this sort of secularization of societies, you know, less, fewer and fewer people, you know, claim religious adherence. And yet, um, more and more people go to, uh, sporting events and, uh, pay money for entertainment and, uh, join together in all kinds of, uh, all kinds of different ways. So I'm really interested in this kind of relation of, um, the secular and the religious through the lens of sort of pop culture and media, uh, I think as, as sort of contemporary conveyors of our, religious sensibilities, our, our creators of our communities, our creators of, you know, values and meaning and purpose and things like that. Um, so, yeah, so I think Christmas is certainly one of those uh, kind of nuggets, one of those sort of places to, to really look as kind of a case study of how this occurs um, in this kind of, you know, the secularized holiday. Uh, just even the, you know, even the, the movies that I just mentioned, right, really have nothing to do. I, I'm not even sure any of them even mentions Jesus in them. You know, maybe, maybe the maybe Jesus, Jesus Christ come up and maybe a song that's sort of sung somewhere in the in the films, but they don't. You know, there's nothing really at all about um, sort of this being a Christian holiday in any of these stories. Uh, and, and so I'm kind of interested in that. You know, and hear this this ostensibly Christian holiday time of Christmas, and um, it's sort of been. Um, I, I don't want to say evacuated of, of, of the Christian meaning because I, I think, you know, as, as anybody who knows the sort of history of Christian and Christianity, or sorry, history of Christmas and Christianity knows it's it's certainly kind of all a, a made up thing anyway. It, it really isn't a consistent, there isn't a consistent way of thinking about it um, through the last uh, couple thousand years. So, um, so yeah, so it's uh, Christmas becomes a way to kind of connect economics and cultural life and media life and religious life. Um, so it's kind of a fun, fun way to think about that. The other, the other side, I'll just say briefly and we'll come back to, but I'm, I'm really interested in the, the reinventions of rituals. I'm really interested in how rituals get remade. You know, they're not, the, they don't, they don't stick around because they're the same old thing all the time. They're, they're, they stick around because they're retold and somebody tweaks things in them and they morph and they adapt in uh, different kinds of ways. So I'm interested in the, the, the morphing and, and uh, tweaking that's happened at Christmas time as a ritual. Uh, that's great. That's a really good way to open up the conversation here. And I'm excited to talk more about um, exactly that, the tweaking and, and how Christmas got made up. Uh, maybe a good place to start would be this article that you wrote for Religion News Service. The title is Technology, Tradition, and the Invention of Christmas in 19th Century New York. Uh, so last week we talked to another scholar kind of in this orbit, Pamela Clausen, about what she called the public work of Christmas. Um, I think what's really fascinating about your article is the story that you tell where that public work, uh, the way that, that this 
sort of holiday accumulates rituals and that sort of thing is also a, a pastiche of, of private interests and companies and, um, you know, people really kind of latching on to it. Could you tell us a little bit about how New York as a sort of innovation hub gave rise to this big and wild holiday that we know today? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, kind of a, a chance to sort of going back through history and finding just all these things that seem to have happened in New York City, especially in the, in the 19th century. Um, you know, for one, it was just through the through the 19th century, New York City, of course, was this flood of uh, immigration, sort of the central hub for immigration for um, for the United States. People, particularly coming from Europe, and um, and it was just this mi- mishmash of of peoples and ethnicities and languages and cultures around uh, around New York City, and, and they there was no real coherent Christmas at the time. So because in part because everybody had their own customs. I mean, it just sort of shows that, you know, just the diversity that is Europe itself, um, right? We sort of tend to think of, oh, they're, they're sort of, I don't know, somebody's Euro-American as if this is a monolithic thing. But, um, you know, Europe has these, you know, fairly rich, distinct traditions. And uh, all these all these cultures came together in New York City and, and didn't really understand each other's traditions. And you had and you had these different theological ideas going on and, and some of the sort of more um, Protestant, more strictly Protestant groups were very, you know, into the Bible and into the sort of anaconicalism, um, sorry, anaconic traditions of um, Protestantism. And uh, so the idea of Christmas was really anathema to them and uh, didn't celebrate in any kind of way. But then there were other groups who, who did celebrate it a bit more. So it was so they, there was no no coherence to it. So finally, they you know threw a number of a uh, number of things, and it was probably Washington Irving in in certain ways who really started to kind of want to get people together and and started writing these stories and wrote this sort of history, this Knicker, uh, Knickerbocker history of New York, and um, and just made a lot of stuff up, of course. But uh, but with it, it it um, brought some ideas together and brought some people together. Um, and so it was sort of this political social movement, uh, but then they had to add these cultural events and they begin to have big feasts. And of course it was Sinterklaas and, and, and his day was December 6th. And they had to somehow translate that, get that to be Christmas day, which was already December 25th. And so all the, you know, a number of things had to happen to, I won't go into all the details of it, but it was, it was a social, it was a political, it was a cultural, it was an economic, um, you know, work of, of many people in, in a number of different situations that sort of coalesced and, and sort of created what we, you know, what we think of, I, I think most of us anyway, if you, this kind of traditional idea of Christmas and things like Santa Claus and gifts and Christmas trees and lights around the Christmas tree and, um, you know, stockings and giving gifts to each other at this, at this time of the year. Um, all this were sort of bits and pieces of different cultures that sort of amalgamated into this one time. Um, and, and I, it's hard to say that in, you know, I think there were definitely a lot of this was economic interest, but it certainly wasn't solely driven by that. Some of it was uh, political interest, but it, but it's, I don't think it's reducible to that either. So it's this real interesting kind of, I think, mixture of, um, of all those things. And, and, uh, you know, by looking at Christmas, you can think about, uh, the political, the, the the economic, the social, as well as the you know religious dimensions, if we allow to sort of bracket that part out. 
from those other things for a while. Yeah, that's a helpful explanation. Well, the story in that article that you tell, it goes from a moment where Christmas is, uh, I mean, you know, culturally scattered, you know, all these different types of practices or, or no practices at all, um, you know, kind of irrelevant to the public, I, I suppose. But it goes from that to a to a moment where it's just a, a national public holiday holiday that consumes all of our attention for like two months. Um, w- one thing that really sticks out in that story is how some corporate and entrepreneurial symbols get tied up in that holiday. I mean, you just said that it can't; it's not all just economics; it's po- politics too, and and you know stuff like that too. But um, I, I think of things like that, that you mentioned mentioned like um, Coca Cola making Santa a mascot or Thomas Edison string lights around a tree. Um, is it is it fair that to say that Christmas is a holiday that is made up by capitalism, or is that too reductive? Is there more going on there? Well, of course, I mean its its roots, of course, whatever its roots are, if there if there are any single roots to it, it certainly uh, you know I mean precedes precedes capitalism. Sort of um, thinking of it strictly speaking, um, I mean there were Christian celebrations of it for you know hundreds of years before this. It just they weren't quite what we think of today, and and. Uh, all that sort of been invented. So, I mean, I think the the modern, what we what we think of from the sort of early 21st century as Christmas, yeah, I'd, I'd say that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that is certainly invented by uh, capitalist uh, capitalist interests. Um, you know, again, I, I I think it's, but I I'm, I tend not to sort of reduce anything down to one cause. <laughs> it's always a little more complex than that. I'm not sure everybody who really had a hand in it was. Um, was doing it out of purely capitalist uh, kinds of interests. I mean, I think Thomas Nast, uh, the illustrator, is kind of an interesting, interesting character. Um, he, uh, you know, of course, is making money off his illustrations, but he really gives the shape to Santa Claus. And you know, and in part, there, I think there's a. I mean, it, I don't. I never knew him. <laughs> he died a long time ago, but it's hard. I have a hard time sort of believing that all he was interested in was making money. I mean, he was. He was an artist, and he was kind of interested in artistic creation. On on one hand, uh, I have a colleague here who's collected his uh, prints, pretty, um, and and written an entire book on on Thomas Nast, and uh, it's kind of a really intriguing character um, in a lot of ways, a 19th century illustrator. Um, so a lot of visual imagery we have comes from Thomas Nast. Of course, then it's quickly picked up by Coca Cola. Who uh, you know does their own does their own twist on it, and Coca Cola is certainly responsible for promulgating the image of Santa Claus and uh, a lot of our Christmas ideas, uh, visual Christmas ideas, uh, as well. But uh, but but before that, it's really it's Thomas Nast and publishing in um, you know Harper's Weekly, particularly in the uh, late 19th century. Yeah, I mean that's always helpful to uh, make the story a little bit complicated and see what what's all going on there. Um, well, I think that's all a good way of setting the stage for a conversation around Christmas. Uh, but we were also really intrigued by another article that came out more recently uh, called "What Makes Christmas Movies So Popular" that you wrote. Um, it was republished at Salon. That's where we saw it, uh, but it's kind of made the rounds at a few places. And you explained there exactly what what you think is going on in Christmas movies. And there's a lot of interesting pieces to it that we'll be able to pull out. But maybe just to start, 
you have this uh, suggestion that there's a, a ritual element to Christmas movies in the sense that they become part of the rhythm of the holiday. And you mentioned even at the top of the episode that you have these these three that you, you always uh, like to watch. Could you tell us a little bit about Christmas film as ritual? Uh, how does that operate? Um, why is that sort of a, an interesting way of looking at this? And, and maybe if you have any insight as to why do we do that at Christmas time with these sort of films in a way that we don't tend to do, um, you know, at, in most other times of the year? Yeah, I mean, I think part part of it is uh, you know ritual studies one hundred and one. We you know do uh, we we do rit- one one main type of ritual are the you know seasonal or calendrical rituals and things that happen on a you know weekly basis or a monthly basis or a yearly basis or something like that. Um, and so I think it's you know it has its place there. It's something we do uh, one time a year, and it's in ways it's special because it's only one time a year um and you pull out the you know you pull out the christmas tree but you also pull out the the dvds or, or however you might have them and uh, watch these things once a year um and i, I think a, a few things happen one is it it reminds us i mean christmas is certainly the, this this contemporary construction is certainly all about nostalgia and for instance, uh, a Christmas story. One of certainly one of my favorites, and I think a lot of people's uh, top at the top of their list is a is a uh, movie done in the 1980s, but sort of reflects on a time in the 1950s. And it's you know the idea that life was much simpler back then, and all I wanted was a Red Ryder BB gun. You know that was that was the most important thing in the world. Um, and you know that's, that's just full of nostalgia. And it's it's you know when it's nostalgia is a I think a terrible way to live overall in life, but it's not a, you know, not a bad thing to dip into from time to time. And I think uh, in part rituals help us, help us relive or reconstruct something from the past. And, you know, whether it's um, a Passover Seder that's, you know, reliving and reactualizing the, um, uh, emancipation from slavery in Egypt and wandering through the wilderness. And, uh, you know, the, at the beginning of the evening in the Seder were enslaved peoples and at the end were liberated peoples. And we, we reenact that on a, on a yearly basis. Um, and I think, I think, you know, in, in the same kind of way, I don't want to put it up there with a Passover Seder, but uh, in the same kind of way, something is going on on a yearly basis. We get a chance to sort of relive um, earlier, ideally simple, simpler times, right? There's sort of this, it's our personal mythologies, I think, come out at these times where we, we reflect on the past, reflect on an easier, easier time in life. Um, so it uh, tends to be a lot of nostalgia uh, involved with it, but I think it can also be a, a critical nostalgia. I don't just want to sort of make it all sort of some, easily overly sappy kind of thing. Um, although I think that might be an important part of it. Uh, I think too, we, we can be critical about our past. And I think, um, I have this experience. So I watch, um, a Christmas story. I've probably seen it 20 times now, you know, since it, since it came out over the years, I haven't watched it every year, but quite a few of the years and it, I can watch it. And I think, Oh yeah, I remember that time I was watching and I was living here, right, in this place. And I can think of the apartment I lived in. And I can think of the people I was around when I watched it. And I can think about who I was at that time. You know, maybe maybe I was a graduate student. Maybe I was, um, you know, in college. Maybe I was taking time off and trying to work and 
something else, uh, you know, living through, uh, living through some tragedy of, uh, of, a, of a friend's, um, um, struggles. So I, I use the, use these times. Um, I, I reflect, I, I don't, I don't mean to, but it's sort of something that happens to me when I watch the films again and again, as I, I, I remember where I was when I watched it before. Uh, so it's not, you know, the, the con it's not so much the content of the film, it's the structure, it's, it's the formal dimensions of being sitting in a place and being overwhelmed by images and sounds and these things sort of transport me back, just as they do in a you know traditional religious ritual. The idea is that it appeals to our senses in various ways and, and moves us bodily so that we reflect on uh, maybe a, a former time, a place we were as a, as a community, as an individual. Um, and uh, it, it triggers, you know, they're, they're triggers in our, you know, in our lives. So I think that so I think in a simple way there, that's um, how rituals work. And I think that's how, sort of having these films this one time of the year work. There's something we, we return to again and again uh, over the years. And in, in returning and in seeing them, we, we learn more about ourselves and our communities and what's, what's valuable to us and, what, and maybe how we've changed uh, through time. Um, but then there's the, but then there's just the, the physical, just the bodily dimensions, the, the sights, the, the, the sounds of it all and being in a particular place that it's, you know, ritual is very embodied. And I think media get to a sense of that embodiment in ways that, you know, perhaps just reading a text doesn't quite do. Well, uh, apart from just the, the, the rhythmic nature of the, you know, film as ritual, the, the um, the content of those films end up meaning quite a bit as well. Um, in your article, you go on to say that, um, you know, Christmas films don't show us the world that we do live in, but instead they show us an idealized world that we could aspire to. And um, that is a pretty, I think, on point uh, idea. One of my wife's favorite movies is The Family Stone. And mm -hmm. it, it's it's a good movie, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, I like it. But but what's so interesting to me about it, I mean, it, it kind of clicked in my brain once I, I read the, the line from you about that is that, you know, it's this film about this huge family and there's um, a new person that comes to, you know, their family uh, Christmas dinner, Sarah Jessica Parker. And, um, you know, there's like all of this tension. And what what ha what happens is that they just like work through the tension and they kind of accept her into the family. And that is an idealized world that we can aspire to. Definitely not the world that we live in. That's not the holidays that I know <laughs> for sure. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's such an interesting observation that Christmas movies are about the the world that we could aspire to. So I guess based on your observations, um, what is the what is the world that we should aspire to in Christmas movies, and how do they uh, communicate that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's the world. I mean, there's I think there's worlds that we, you know, to be moral or ethical about it. I think there's worlds that maybe we should aspire to, and then worlds that we want to aspire to. Hmm. Um, and uh, you know, those are sometimes uh, uh, you know sometimes those are similar things and sometimes those not, aren't necessarily but um, I, I, I mean in the bottom line most of the of the um, stories are are the same right all the all these hallmark movies and I know some very uh, intelligent people with uh, advanced degrees who just love to sit in front of the the hallmark the real real kind of cheesy romance and they'll admit that it's cheesy romance and but they they love to sit and watch them um and uh it's there, there there's a it's because i think it's you know it's a simple there's here are these people 
and then tension happens and then resolution happens and, and they're together in the end, right? It's got to have a happy ending to it. Um, and so this, it's, a, it's a desire for, for, to not be alone. You know, I mean, I, it's just as, uh, in some ways it's just as simple as that. It's not good for humans to be alone. And these stories repeat that message again and again. In the end, we want to be together with other people. Um, we want these tensions to go away. We want these struggles, the fights, the, um, you know, whatever it is that's keeping us from each other. Uh, we want those things to be overcome so that we can be together again, whether it's a romantic sense of being together, a familial sense of being together, uh, um, or, or anything along the way. Um, and the, the films just, they, they give us that, right? Wrapped up in 90 minutes time, you've got the tensions, you've got the possibility that it's all going to be okay in the end. Um, and so I think they, you know, it's a, and, and I think certain people will, will would critique that um, and say that's, you know, that's an, uh, not a realistic view of life. But I, I don't. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. Again, sort of back to the ritual things. I'm not sure. Rituals are. We're not meant to live in rituals. They're just glimpses of things. They're just um, possibilities of things. It's a, It's it's what we do when we read literature, right? We play with the possibilities. What if? What if this were to happen? What if this was the case? And it stretches our mind in various ways to play with these possibilities. Um, Certainly there can be some dangerous parts and people could just live in these kind of movies all the time and never really come out. I can, you know, sort of imagine that happening. But um, I think for most people, it's just a, it's not, and it, and it isn't just an escape. I mean, I think there is that element and I don't think that's necessarily a bad part of it, but it, it's, it's more than just an escape. It's actually a movement to, it's a movement to something, movement into another world. And uh, in that, um, it's there's a simple wish fulfillment to it, but it also might just provoke things in us. It might just actually change the ways we relate to other people. And I think there's actually good evidence that it does actually, watching these actually does change our, um, our chemistry, our, our ways of thinking. Uh, over time. Yeah, I mean, everything that you're saying, I think, is exactly why I love watching a lot of Christmas movies all the time. And Christmas is, is my favorite holiday, even though I'm a pretty vulgar Marxist most of the time of the year. I, I like to, you know, give myself over to the <laughs> just the, the holly jolly time. Um, but I'm also sort of interested in the, the dangerous present there, too, and trying to play with those two things. I mean, so you end the article explaining Christmas films build this kind of world where all is right at the end. So, you know, in, in Jingle All the Way, it's spending your time time with your family is more important than getting a Turbo Man action figure. Or uh, in, in Elf, the real meaning of Christmas is connecting with your family. Um, and so there's, there is a sense in which Christian film, or sorry, Christmas films uh, emphasize that Christmas isn't just about consumerism or presence. In fact, they sort of fight against that spirit of the holiday. Um, and that, that's a really nice sentiment. Uh, but there's also trapped between this kind of nostalgia and utopia, uh, this tension because Christmas is constructed out of our consumptive desires. And so there's this kind of strange, you know, um, I don't know, like uh, bifurcated <laughs> reality that Christmas forces us to uh, live into. So how do you think that we work out that tension or what are some interesting ways of uh, working out that tension during the holidays? Yeah, I think that's uh, really, uh, really important um, 
dimension to it all. And I obviously we're going to sort of come to it uh, a little bit differently. Um, I mean, and, and of course these these films are you know working within a capitalist film production structure. Um, so even if they're sort of suggesting they're not um, you know anti-materialist, they're they're within this sort of structure this 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 capitalist uh, industrial film production um so people are making money off of uh, off of these movies that pretend money isn't important um so i think the uh i i think there's things to be going i mean on one hand i think uh you know sort of back to this this ritual idea this this um you know that number of people theorized about ritual as sort of this expenditure this sort of excess and, um, you know, it's not, nothing's really sort of necessary in a sense in the midst of it. It's, it's sort of, uh, extravagant excess and, you know, I'm sort of, I'm fascinated by that, that idea. Um, obviously there's, you know, limits to all that. And, and then how do you create those limits, which, you know, become kind of uncomfortable to sort of move around and, and, and think about in, 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 in terms of the rituals and the excess, um, so I don't know. I'm not sure I have any any easy answer to it. I, I try to I try to move between kind of this, you know, seemingly you know try to think of myself as sort of a critical academic, um, but I'm also not interested in kind of suggesting that the general public who is spending a lot of time watching Hallmark movies is somehow wrong, you know. Uh, in the midst of things, either and um, that, 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 yeah, that to me comes the rub. I guess I'm sort of I, I would love to do more research and try to figure out, you know, what what actually is going on in the minds. You know, get 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 people hooked up to. <laughs> here's my dream, my dream project. Uh, get get a get a hundred people and and hook them up to fMRIs and scan their scan their brains while they're watching Hallmark movies and figure out which uh, parts of their brains are. Being worked. <laughs> Dang. I'm in for that's that study. What I, that sounds great. That's what that's what I want to know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I'll be the first one to do it. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the hallmark center of the brain is definitely uh, <laughs> a slight uh, pattern. It is somewhere somewhere next somewhere next to the lizard uh, somewhere next to the lizard part. Um, ancient ancient yeah, structures, uh, I think. I heard uh, Lizard Christmas is the new uh, Hallmark movie coming out this week. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Dang. Well, switching gears a little bit from Lizard Christmas, even though I would love to know what that movie is about, Dean. Maybe later, though. Um, (laughs) You you wrote a book recently called Religion in Film, Cinema and the Recreation of the World. Um, That clearly clearly informs your look here at Christmas movies. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your theory of cinema there and how that illuminates the way Christmas movies recreate the world? Yeah. So yeah, clearly a lot of the stuff I'm, I'm talking about with the Christmas movies is, is stuff I've been thinking about for quite a long time. Um, in in terms of religion and film more broadly, not just Christmas films. Uh, actually I think in the book, I don't, I don't think I mentioned any Chris, I can't remember. It's a little while now since I, since I actually wrote it, but <laughs> I mentioned any Christmas films, um, or at least spending much time talking about them. Um, but yeah, I think, all, I think all films uh, do this in various ways, you know, whether it's star Wars or, um, or even horror films, uh, in a lot of ways, they, um, they train, you know, they take us into another world. They transport us into, uh, another world. We sit and we're sort of, and it's not that, and again, it's not, I think thinking of a film as escape is not, 
you know, it's, it's not incorrect, but it's just not complete. We, we, we do sort of go to escape and, you know, I mean, I think about, um, Walter Benjamin, who I did some work on earlier in my life, um, you know, sort of saw mass media as, as an important thing. He was sort of, uh, kind of had some disagreement, I think, with uh, Adorno and Horkheimer over this because um, he sort of thought, well, this is good. You know, the, the masses have been working really hard and they need a, they need some time off and the movies, it's great to have an escape for them. Um, and, you know, I think there's something something to that, but I think it's it's more than that. And, and of course, Benjamin knew this too. It was that they, they actually change our view of the world. So we go to the movies and we watch something, we walk out and we're actually different people. You know, something is, something is, shifted in our um in our neural pathways you know it's it's opened up new channels of of understanding things in the world our perspectives have have shifted so there's this sort of this idea that there's these two worlds that you know there's this world we live in and there's this world on screen and they're somehow separate but i'm actually sort of interested in this kind of that cinema recreates the world in other words the sort of world that we live in and so we go to watch the movies but then they reflect back in our lives and so we 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 do things differently there was a great great um article um a couple years ago by um oh who was it was it uh, i think a.o scott the new york Times, one of the new york times film critics um talked about it had this great essay in the times a few years back on kissing and uh, just went through all these kisses in films and talked about, you know, said, we, we actually, we don't kiss anymore like we used to because we've been watching kisses in film for so long. And we have these, all these expectations of what a kiss should be like. And it's always, of course, different in the real world and the flesh and blood world. Um, but it's changed the way we kiss and the way we approach other people uh, when two faces come closer together. Um, and I just, it's just a great, you know, sort of thought to, to think about even our, even our, our very intimate acts have been changed because of film. Um, and I, and I really think that's, um, I think that's the case. Uh, so, so my book is sort of at first to start talking about the, the content of the films to think about what happens, how are these films creating, how are these films recreating the world? And I look at sort of the cinematography, I look at the editing, I look at the, the lighting, the mise-en-scene of a, of a film, and sort of look at how the world is, is recreated through, through color and motion and form. Um, but then I turn in the, the second half of the book to look at other elements. So the, you know, what I was sort of talking about a little bit earlier too, that there's this ritualized uh, dimension involved that it's not so much the content of the film, though that that's important, but it is what happens when you get a group of people, they come together in one location, they all face forward, you know, facing this light coming, uh, look reflecting in their eyes and um they're they're transformed in a in a collective kind of way um you know what what happens to their bodies in the midst of these things um so and and then and then ultimately the ways uh we we sort of leave the theater and how these things stick with us so uh I use a little example of the uh film rocky from the 1970s so rocky um uh <clears throat> if you go to the philadelphia museum of art right you go up to the top of the steps and you see Rocky's footprints up there at the top and people, you know, tourists go there all the time. It's one of the top tourist attractions in Philadelphia is to go up the steps of the Philadelphia museum of art and get to the top and jump up and down with your arms in the air, like you're Rocky, take a picture. And, and the internet's full of pe people standing at the top of the stairs. But of course there's, 
no such person as Rocky, right? He was just a fictional character, right? It wasn't, they're not talking about Sylvester Stallone here. His, his name doesn't show up. It's the name Rocky. And this is a, you know, for all intents and purposes, a fake person. Um, so I'm interested in that, how that, that sort of things on screen come down off the screen and actually enter into our lives and actually change, you know, what are you going to do when you go to Philadelphia? Well, I'm going to go to see the, see the steps where Rocky, Rocky ran up. Right. And most people don't even know that it's the Philadelphia museum of art. Um, and the Philadelphia museum of art, actually, they're heard from people who work in the gift shop there. They say they're constantly bombarded with people who walk in and they're looking for Rocky paraphernalia, uh, in the Philadelphia Mu- museum of art. It's this, you know, wonderful sort of clashing of worlds. I think that that happens, uh, in these kinds of places. So the, or the, um, tourist, industry in New Zealand got this huge boost. I mean, it was something like 50% increase after the Lord of the Rings uh, <laughs> was was filmed there. It was um, Peter Jackson is from there, so he filmed it there. And, uh, you know, never mind that it was based on a, you know, mid-20th century English uh, professor who was writing these, mytho- rewriting mythologies of uh, ancient Norse and Norse, Northern European myths. Um, and then, uh, the filmmaker films it in, um, New Zealand, it's actually, you know, middle earth is New Zealand now. And, and people go there cause they want to be in middle earth and they want to go to Hobbit town. Um, so these, these confusions, you know, and, and nobody, you know, actually thinks, okay, this is actually middle earth, but it's just this, this full on belief in, or, or willingness you know or suspension of disbelief i guess really um this this willingness to want to be part of this world of this uh, of this other universe and you know there's something you know i obviously they don't even really hopefully have to spell out the religious <laughs> parallels with that you know these are these are worlds we want to go and we want to live in um they they present themselves so attractively to us that we want to be part of these things um, so the, so yeah, so I'm, those are kind of the larger things. I, I, I don't want to just, just be analyzing the content of the film. I want to think about how films are changing our lives off screen. And, uh, I think there's a lot of evidence that they are. That makes a lot of sense. Um, that reminds me a little bit of, uh, what Stuart Hall says in the essay encoding decoding. Um, there's a line, I can't remember it off the top of my head really, but basically he's saying that, you know, um, violent movies don't make you violent. They just tell you what someone thinks about violence, right? It's uh, what he's trying to say is that the, the point here is that when you see violence in a film, you're seeing like the way someone thinks about violence um, and, and not how it might actually be. But that, that kind of, I don't know, it resonates with what you're saying a little bit here in the sense that, you know, what you see is not reality, but you see an idealized world where um, a certain uh, understanding or type of, um, fantasy of violence or love or family life are all enacted. And then we, you know, we glimpse it and we want to be a part of it. And um, to me, when it comes to Christmas movies, it seems like there's a lot of catharsis bound up in it, right? Like uh, you you watch the family stone or, uh, or jingle all the way or whatever. And you see how Christmas should be. And it feels like, um, like, you you know, what's going on for a minute or that there's some, some kind of better possibility out there that maybe this year things will be different for you. I don't know. Do you have any, do you have any feelings about catharsis and Christmas? Is there anything to it? Or am mm-hmm. I being very cynical? <laughs> no, no, I think, I think definitely catharsis is, um, is part of it. I think definitely, 
they're a cathartic, uh, you know, like ancient, ancient theater. It's, um, yeah, I think there's something to it. I just, I don't think it's, it's always, you know, catharsis. I mean, I think there's other explanations and in, in, in other kinds of ways. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, catharsis is, is, is part of it. There's a certain kind of, um, right. We, we follow the narrative arc. I, I'm a viewer. I, I go through the struggles. I'm there at the beginning. I'm there in the middle and I'm there at the end and I'm, things are wrapped up for me and it, it, it feels, you know, have a sense of completion at the, at the end, a sense of fulfillment, uh, at the end. Um, but there's, you know, there, uh, even so there are films that, I mean, again, I sort of come back to, uh, it's a wonderful life, you know, which people sort of, some people sort of, I, I think unfairly critique as being, oh, it's too, you know, it's too nice. Everything, you know, turns out happy in the end, which of course it does. But the darkness of that film is, is deep. And if you really watch that film, the darkness is what's going to stick with you. Um, you know, it's not the, it's, it's not the happy ending, you know, that made me feel good to walk out of the theater or get up from the, get up from the couch afterwards. But, um, but that dark part, you know, where he, where, uh, George Bailey gets shown his, the world without him. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's heavy stuff and, you know, it's contemplating suicide at this point in his life. And, um, you know, just some terrible things happen, uh, along the way. And, um, it's, you know, just wanting to be done with his family, just wanting to be done with his own life. Um, there's a great scene. I, I have, I have kids and there's a, um, there's a scene in the movie where he's, he's, uh, just everything has fallen apart and he talks to his wife. He says, why do we have to have all these kids anyway? <laughs> I just, I say that around the house. So constantly, you know, <laughs> like, why, why do we have to have all these kids anyway? <laughs> it's like, you're totally fed up with things at home sometimes. And that's always my response. Um, I, I, and I know of course why I, my kids are great. I love my kids, but <laughs> there are those moments um, when we feel like that. So I think I think there's you know there, there's catharsis, but then there's something there's something you know in the in the in the really the better films, and I, I think film like that is is just the power of the film um, comes out in that it's those it's those those dark moments that are the ones that sort of grip us and and sort of stay with us for some time, and that sort of struggle and that search and that that um desire to to find it it's not the it's not the not having found it at the end that's the power it's the quest for looking that uh really has the power in the in a film like that um so yeah i think there's uh you know there's more more to just things being kind of wrapped up in the end um and uh, hollywood sort of you know famous for wanting to tack on uh, happy endings to things and no end to stories of directors who had disagreements with the production companies and wanted to leave things uh, more open-ended, you know, and the production company said, nope, we're paying for this. We want this to be a happy ending. And, you know, Orson Welles and uh, so many, so many others had strong disagreements with, uh, with the people with the money um, wanting to make it, leave it open-ended and Hollywood always wanted to, wanted to wrap things up nice and neatly. Um, but I think there's, you know, but, but I think there are some of those films where you, it doesn't matter if it, if it's wrapped up neatly in the end, it's, it's actually, there, there's a whole lot of struggle to get there. And that struggle is really what makes the, 
what makes the films interesting. Uh, well, I appreciate, Brent, that you've been um, fighting so strongly for how we can appreciate Christmas <laughs> in the midst of all the craziness of it. I think it's really helpful for, for us to hear. <laughs> uh, no, it's good. It's good, um, especially because we've been we've been doing some heavy material around around Christmas in this podcast so far. So it's great to uh, have somebody helping us figure out how to enjoy it. Um, I do, though. I'm going to give you one more challenge. <laughs> a uh, this is a question I thought about earlier after I read um, an article by D.L. Mayfield uh, in the Lily, where she watched uh, ten Hallmark Christmas movies, the top ten. And just kind of tried to, you know, see what bubbled up for her. So this sort of goes back to what you were saying earlier. Um, and uh, we'll see where it goes. So I want to read a little bit of a, um, a kind of longish quote, but I think it's a, a telling one. So she says, first of all, that in 2018, Hallmark was the most watched channel on cable among women ages 18 to 54 in the last quarter. So talk about, you know, recreating reality, I guess, for a certain demographic. Um, and she says in a paragraph, of the top 10 films, every lead actor is white. Every relationship is homosexual, or sorry, heterosexual. <laughs> uh, every, every career person is inferior to a family type. Every small town in America understands the world better than the big city folks. Every family dispute can be solved by a big holiday dinner. Every person loves celebrating Christmas regardless of their actual religion and traditions. Long after the pleasant experience of watching good-looking people find non-controversial love amid a background of snow and twinkly lights, fades the questions remain whom are these movies for and what vision of the world are they upholding so these films aren't exactly the classics of course um but she points out that they they have the shaping power that you're talking about and um just talking a little more about these kinds of themes that you've been bringing up uh i wonder a little bit you know do you think that this is kind of a reproduction of ideology that might be different than what was going on before in movies like A Christmas Story or Elf? You know, this is somewhat of a more recent phenomenon. Um, is this kind of more of the same? Is it the just a new sort of ritualizing or recreating the holiday, like you said? You know, what what's going on there? And I guess, yeah, how, how can we think about that sort of phenomenon? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, that she, she's absolutely right uh, on that. Um, I mean, somebody, I, I don't know which film she's talking about, but, but yeah, I mean, even the ones that I've listed, you know, are, they're heteronormative. Um, it's white people, you know, almost consistently. Um, it's, yeah, it's for a very particular demographic, um, of, of people and it's, it's the seeing themselves in, yeah, it's the, um, it's it, you know, reflecting their own people's lives, what they want. They don't, it's a time people don't want to be challenged. Any of the challenges at this time of the year need to be contained. You know, I don't want, I don't want to think too far beyond my, um, my comfort zone, you know, so things are reaffirming of, of certain people's lives or, or they're, you know, maybe not reaffirming, but, um, cause I, again, I, I have no idea who's watching these films and, and I, I really don't have the stories of the people who are watching them. And it's, uh, Christmas is, uh, of course, a, a serious time for, for people with mental illnesses. And, um, it's a very difficult time for, for many people. Um, and so I think that's, you know, I don't, I don't know what the film, what some of these films do for, for people in those situations. Um, but I think it would be an important question to, to ask and to think about further, uh, all that. Um, I mean, and, and granted, and, and I am in my, in my 
book and religion and film. I'm I'm very critical actually of of the Hollywood uh, film industry and the sort of um, oh idiopathic kind of filmmaking. This sort of desire to always sort of reconstruct this the same world again and again, where the the, the white savior comes in and uh, makes everything okay in in various ways. So I, I don't want to sort of paint too rosy a picture of everything because um there's deep Deep-seated racism in uh, in Hollywood just continues. The the Golden Globes awards just uh, the other day sort of shows uh, the gender disparity that continues on uh, in Hollywood. And I've written about this in in, in a number of places. Um, so yeah, I don't want to don't want to oversell uh, too much of this because there's uh, some deep 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 problems with it. I I do think I mean I have read and I'm really not. Not at all an expert of these kind of, you know, as we sort of um, shorthand the Hallmark, the Hallmark movies. Um, but not It's not only Hallmark who's doing these movies, but it seems to be the kind of shorthand uh, for it. Um, I, as I understand it, there's been a number of sort of um, non-white, non-heterosexual uh, stories that have been coming up, you know, with this sort of huge increase in them. They've, they've been branching out and there are... Um, well, I mean, I do know there are, you know, stories of uh, Latinos and um, African Americans as well mixed in with some of these uh, more more dominant uh, white people uh, stories. I don't know what the ratios are. I mean, that would be kind of interesting to look at uh, as well. Um, but you know, with that, and and then more, you know, of course, the other thing is more Hanukkah stories. Uh, more and more Hanukkah stories are coming out, which, you know, is kind of a, a mixed thing. Of course, Hanukkah is not all that huge of a holiday on the um on the uh and the jewish tradition but it's sort of becoming more and more a big <laughs> a big thing because of this sort of capitalist push for christmas um it's, it's interesting how hanukkah has become sort of nudged up and the importance of holidays over the years in modern modern united states yeah i should say uh mayfield does end up she concludes her article uh definitely not um disparaging people who sort of want uh the narratives that that you know, you might expect in a certain Hallmark film, but she points people toward uh, Netflix and some others that have a bit more diversity in terms of representation or, um, you know, actors and that sort of thing. So maybe that sort of splits the difference a little bit. Um, I guess you mentioned Walter Benjamin earlier. Uh, if I remember right, he also has this uh, theory film where he says, you know, one day when the revolution comes, then we'll truly find out what the workers think about uh, film and cinema. So I guess uh, the same might be said about Christmas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, I I think that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that uh, things were different when when Benjamin was alive. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, that revolution is going to look a whole lot different than it did. Uh, than did at that point. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Well, as we kind of get to the the end of the hour here. Um, <laughs> I, I want to bring us back to this one phrase that Pamela Clausen introduced us to um, last week, which was uh, she called Christmas uh, a holiday of aggressive inclusion, uh, which is a really suggestive phrase because it, on the one hand, has a, you know, the, the aggressivity could be positive or negative and the inclusion, too, could be positive or negative. Uh, it's just a really sort of fruitful kind of way of describing it. Um, and I wonder, where, you know, you've done all this work on film and Christmas films and that sort of thing and, and world building, etc. cetera. Uh, what do you make of that, that kind of phrase, that way of describing Christmas as aggressive inclusion, as all of us, you know, you flip through your television uh, channels and for sure, at least by the 22nd, 
second, you know, all of them are going to be running some kind of Christmas programming, some of them all day. Uh, what do you think that that sort of says about the way that film functions in the, the ritualistic building of that aggressive uh, inclusion? Yeah, huh, that's a good question. I mean, I think like, you know, like anything living in a sort of consumerist uh, society, it it just, you know, just it just bombards us. It's just relentless um, in the, uh, you know, desire for our attention and ultimately for our for our dollars. Um, and I, you know, I, I resist. I mean, my own life is sort of filled with fairly. Um, uh, how do you say, uh, sort of <laughs> non-consumerist practices. Um, and I actually don't spend a whole lot of time watching pretty, really deliberate actually when I watch, uh, when I watch films, um, and I'm not someone I really actually watch very little television and very little, very few films. Um, I, I'm interested in why people, yeah, again, I'm just, I'm just interested in why people do and what is the, the need for it. I mean, I, I think it's, I'm afraid of being too cynical and sort of saying we're all just sort of pawns in a big, uh, large corporate uh, capitalist culture that's sort of giving us everything that we need to see. Um, I mean, I, I it's I go that way a lot of times. I think it's hard not to see that in certain ways, but um, but I'm also I guess I'm just always wanting to know what the average person is thinking and why they're doing what they're doing and why they're watching what they're watching. Um, some sort of belief, I was just rereading some article on uh, Noam Chomsky um, recently, it was sort of, you know, back in the 60s, is talking about the, the life of the intellectuals and the problem with the, you know, intellectuals and academics is uh, we think we've got it all figured out. We've got the critical responses and the people just don't know what they're doing. And they need us to tell them, you know, how to think about war and how to think about peace. And um, he he had a set a strong belief in people, the everyday uh, everyday person um, who is not an academic. And I, I tend to view the world like that. I think as well. Um, I, I want to be critical of Hollywood. And again, I've, I've published a fair amount of stuff that's that's very critical of it and i constantly try to get my students to watch non-hollywood films and films with uh non-white people and films you know not in english and not made in the united states or uh even europe um but there's but in the the end of the day there's still you know a couple hundred million people in the united states anyway who are interested in these kinds of things and i'm sort of interested in why they're interested as well um trying to let trying to figure out what their what their what their interest is why why do they need these films i guess just just keep coming back to to that question in the end i want to do as much as i can to get people to sort of turn people's heads and start thinking about other films and and television shows um in fact just the other day my, my wife and i were we, we sat down we watched uh watch a TV show where did we watch I guess we were watching Maisel Miss Marvelous Miss Maisel uh, which is just kind of a fun fun show in a lot of ways I think it has some pretty good issues in it but um, but we realized there's sort of the all the shows we've watched this year we, we actually haven't seen any with a white male lead in it and it 
I mean, none of the shows that we've sort of been, or, well, we don't really binge watch, but the shows we've sort of followed along don't have any white male leads. And, uh, you know, we know there's plenty of them out there. It just, we seem to have gravitated away from them. Um, I don't think it was a conscious decision, but uh, it's it's nice to be in a place where there's so much really good television and really good film that doesn't have just white men, heterosexual uh, lead actors in the in the in the films. So I, don't get me wrong; there's plenty of them out there, but there's a lot of good choices now uh, that don't include them, um, and so that's an encouraging. I think an encouraging place. I, I think these things take a long time, um, frustratingly long time for, for them to change. Um, and you know, with all these, uh, as you mentioned, Mayfield's article, I, you know, I'm sure so many of these Hollywood or Hallmark films are doing that, repeating that again and again, but, but ideally there are other ones out there as well that are, are worth looking at. And so I'm, I'm sort of an optimist, uh, in that sense. I'm, I'm, I've been, looking at these things for a good 30 years now. And, um, I, I think things are changing not fast enough, but they're changing. So that's, um, that's my sort of my Christmas hope. <laughs> my Christmas hope <laughs> is that, uh, it will look, uh, <laughs> maybe someday it will look a little more like the old, uh, you know, Coca-Cola Christmas commercials where they want to teach the world to sing and it's, it's a good multicultural group of people singing together. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> uh, yeah. They sort well, of, we behind that, hopefully uh, mediated though by some other, <laughs> some other um, sovereign. Uh, some, exactly. Some other commodity. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much for joining us, Brent, um, especially in this uh sort of around Christmas time season anyway. Um, we've really appreciated reading some of the work that you're doing. Uh, we'd like to point people especially toward the research that you're up to, um, not just on Christmas, but on film and media. I, I've read your book on Walter Benjamin and art, and it's really fun and fantastic. Um, and yeah, uh, thanks again just for sharing uh, some of your um, insights about Christmas with us. You bet. My pleasure. Great to talk to you all. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can give us a little Christmas gift at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. And by Christmas gift, we mean a monthly donation, the gift that keeps on giving. Think of it as your subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. It's um, a ritual. That's a, <laughs> it's a ritual. Um, that's a deep cut uh, Christmas vacation joke. Um you can find us on Twitter or at The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. You can, I don't know what else you can do. You can buy some last minute late Christmas gifts because um, we know you did forget one special person in your life. Who it is, I don't know. Uh, but you can get some last minute gifts at redbubble.com. You can find our store there. Uh, our music for this Christmas theme has been by Carlos Maggio Godoy, uh, Navidad and Libertad. That's what you heard in the beginning. And our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. Uh, next week's our last Christmas episode, so if you're sick of them, too bad. You've got one more, you Scrooge. They will swim with all creation, never get tired, never bored, don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, keep your hoods up, and 
Tuesday up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but might mind if you leave too soon. So come